Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 113, Greek Fire. Constans II, rather an unimpressive emperor, remained on Sicily for five years for no good reason. It's anybody's guess what might have happened. Constans was still a young man and could look forward to a very, very long reign. His reign so far had been pretty disastrous for the empire. It was not all his fault, but he'd lost more territory than any emperor since the fall of the West. The Arabs had even managed to launch an offensive against Crete. Even true Greek territory was no longer safe from raids. On the 15th of September 668, one of his attendants decided he'd had enough of the Emperor Constans II. While he was having a bath, the attendant picked up a soap dish, crept up on the bathing Basileus and smashed him viciously over the head. The Emperor was killed by a single blow of this unusual weapon. He was still only 37 years old, but had been Emperor for 27 of them. Fortunately for the Empire, his son and heir was made of stronger stuff. He'd been left in Constantinople while his father was in Sicily. In fact, he'd actually been left in charge of the city, despite being a very young teenager. He was crowned Constantine IV. The new Basileus was the first emperor in Roman history whose father, grandfather and great-grandfather had all also been emperors. Constantine immediately came under pressure from some army regiments in Asia Minor to raise his two younger brothers to the rank of co-emperor. Constantine invited the regimental leaders to a conference to discuss the issue. When they arrived, he had them all executed and hung them up in one of the suburbs of Constantinople to show everyone that there was only going to be one leader, and the one leader was him. He later had the noses of his brothers slit, so they were unfit to be emperors. The new Basileus also had to deal with the rebellion in Sicily, which had led to his father's death. It took him only half a year to snuff out the revolt. In his efforts, he was helped by the Pope Vitalian. Constantine IV was only 16 when he came to the throne. He had, though, unlike his father and grandfather, inherited some of the leadership and strength of his great-grandfather. Heraclius would have been proud of him. Heraclius would not, however, have been proud of the last member of the dynasty to wear the purple. While he was still a teenager, Constantine's wife Anastasia gave birth to their first child. They must have hoped for great things from him because they decided to name him Justinian. So, we've reached another point in our story where the empire is having to get used to being a lot smaller than it used to be. In the 400s, the empire lost half of its territory in about 50 years as the entire western empire was lost, leaving just the rich provinces in the east. Justinian and Belisarius had halted the decline and retaken some of the lost lands in Italy, Africa and Spain, but most of these gains had been reversed soon afterwards. In the 600s, the empire lost half of what was left, losing Syria, Palestine and Egypt, leaving Asia Minor, the Balkans and a bit of Italy in North Africa. The Arabs were a seemingly unstoppable force, and it seemed highly likely they would take the rest of the empire before too long. Of course, this is not what happened. The empire would be around for another 800 years. Some of those years would be truly glorious. But it's now time for us to see the empire in a different way. The West is gone for good. Egypt, Palestine and the Arabian territories are gone for good. North Africa will soon be gone for good. The Byzantine Empire really now consists of Greece, the Balkans, Asia Minor, Thrace and parts of Italy. It is these lands that future emperors will try to hold on to. There will be no more gains, no expansion out of these territories. So, the teenager on the throne at the beginning of the 670s could not be expected to do much more about it, 
that Constantine IV was both ruthless and intelligent and would be the first emperor ever to gain a victory over the Muslims. In 674, though, that victory seemed a long, long way away. Muawiyah had become caliph after the assassination of Ali and had renewed his attacks on the empire. More islands fell to the Arab navy and in 672 the Arab fleet sailed up the Hellespont and into the Sea of Marmara. Before long, the Sisychus Peninsula had been captured and only 50 miles of sea lay between the Arabs and Constantinople. It was clear that Muawiyah intended to attack the seaward side of the great city. He knew just as well as everyone else that the land walls were too strong and he'd never take the city simply by attacking it from the land. So in 674, the Arabs laid siege to the landward side and the seaward side. For the first time, Constantinople was completely surrounded. The capital held out against the first Arab campaign and the Muslim fleet retired to Curzon for the winter. The next spring they were back. The city held out against the second campaign and the Arabs went back to Curzon for the winter again. They were sure they'd take the city soon and they were very patient. The next campaign was different and when the Arabs retired to Curzon for a third time they had a lot more to think about. A deadly and terrifying weapon had been used on their fleet. The weapon would be responsible for saving the empire this time and many times in the future. The Arab navy had certainly had no idea what was about to hit them. In the 600s, the most common type of imperial warship was called the Droman. There were three types, three different sizes. They could be powered either by sail or by rowers. They had central towers near the main mast from where archers fired arrows and they were often equipped with catapults which could launch 10 kilogram rocks up to 250 metres. The Dromans which approached the Arab fleet in the mid-670s though were equipped with something far more deadly. The Arab ships were moored off Constantinople. It was just another day in the long process of besieging the empire's capital and the Arabs were not surprised to see the Roman Dromans approaching. This had happened many times before and there had never been a real battle. This time it was different. Without warning there was a mighty roar just as a stream of fire and a thick cloud of black smoke spewed from the side of one of the ships, then from another, and then another. But this wasn't just fire. When the fire hit the Arab ships, it seemed to stick to the decks and keep burning. Then the ships themselves began to burn, and then the people on the ships. The sailors tried to jump into the water, but the water was on fire too. This was impossible, and the Arabs were petrified. Such was the effect of what we now know as Greek fire. But what exactly was Greek fire? Well, a bit of background. In 672, the former province of Phoenicia was overrun by the Muslim conquests, including the city of Heliopolis. An architect from that city, named Callinicus, escaped and travelled to Constantinople. With him, he brought the secret of a devastating new weapon. The really amazing thing about Greek fire is that to this day, we really don't know what it consisted of or how it was made. It was a liquid and is thought to have contained some sort of petroleum probably crude oil, resins added as a thickener, possibly bitumen and naphtha, and probably sulphur. As time went on, the manufacture of Greek fire became what amounted to a state secret. Knowledge of the manufacture, storage and usage of the weapon were kept in separate places. No single person was allowed to know the whole secret. In the early 800s, the Bulgars managed to capture a large quantity of the weapon, but they had no idea how to use it. Greek fire burned on water, making it very difficult to escape from during naval battles. 
Of course, it was also dangerous to those who deployed it, and so the Byzantines, who used the weapon, were dressed in fire-resistant leather armour. The ships from which it was deployed were treated with a mixture of vinegar, alum and talc, which made them resistant to fire too. The fire which resulted from the use of the weapon was very difficult to extinguish. Reports suggest that only old urine or vinegar, which probably reacted chemically with the substance, could put it out. The only other method was to deprive the fire of oxygen, usually by smothering the blaze in sand. This, of course, was not very practical during a battle taking place on water. In its early days, Greek fire was deployed by projection through a tube from a ship such as a Dromon. Later, projectiles containing the liquid were developed that could be thrown or dispatched via a catapult. Greek fire was by no means the only thing that helped the empire continue to keep itself viable for hundreds more years, but it certainly played a key role in its survival. Its first use was against the Arab fleet during the first siege of Constantinople. It would be used in many different ways by many different emperors and their armies against many different enemies. The Arabs, of course, were not used to losing, and so they returned for two more campaigns, but they had no answer to Greek fire. In 678, they packed up and went home. On the way, they ran into a freak autumn storm, and most of the fleet was sunk. This was the first time the empire had scored a real victory over the Muslims. Constantine followed it up with some land victories over them, and was soon raiding as far down as Jerusalem. In 679, a 30-year peace was agreed, and the caliph agreed to pay 50 slaves, 50 horses, and 3,000 pieces of gold every year in tribute. Not only that, the Arabs returned all of the captured islands to the empire. Constantine received the Kagan of the Avars and ambassadors from the Slavs, and even the Franks and the Lombards. He was proclaimed as leader of the Christian world and praised for his great victory. For the first time, there was peace between the Byzantine and Arab empires on reasonably equal terms. Constantine IV then turned his attention to the church. In 681, he summoned a great council called the Sixth Ecumenical Council. It held 18 meetings and the emperor himself sat in on 11 of them. The council declared that monophysitism and monothelitism were both wrong and that Jesus had two wills and two energies, God and human. At last, this was accepted by all of the leading Christians in the empire both in Rome and Constantinople. It didn't matter too much what the other three patriarchs thought, since their seats, Antioch, Jerusalem and Alexandria, were now part of the Muslim territories. At the end of the council, the emperor made a grand speech. He was cheered and cheered and cheered. People called him the new Constantine the Great, the new Justinian, the destroyer of all heretics and the light of the world. Now this is pretty impressive stuff, especially for a man who was not yet 30. With the Arabs finally subdued, Constantine led a successful campaign against the Slavs and was soon moving against the Bulgars. He became ill, however, and had to return home. The army panicked without him and the Bulgars crossed the Danube and took control of some imperial land. This land is now most of the modern country of Bulgaria. Constantine eventually agreed to let them live there, still citizens of the empire but with their own king. But it wasn't to last. Constantine IV is another of those strong emperors who were there to rescue the empire during its darkest times. Like so many others, Aurelian, Probus, Valentinian and Theodosius to name but four, he died too early. He could have achieved so much more, but an attack of dysentery killed the great-grandson of Heraclius in 685. He was still only 33 years old and had been emperor for 17 years. 
His son assumed the purple as Justinian II without any resistance. He was the son of Constantine IV and the great-great-grandson of Heraclius, and he was welcomed to the throne. Justinian was immensely proud of his name, and he set about trying to be just like the first Justinian. He had the ambition, he had the determination, and he had some of the vision of the great emperor. Unfortunately, he inherited a bit of the madness of his family, the madness that had stopped Heraclius being able to cross the sea, and was certainly inherited by Constans II. He also had a cruel streak, wider than the Danube. Despite only being 16 when he assumed the purple, and not being as mature as his father had been when he became emperor at the same age, Justinian II's reign did not start too badly. In 686, he appointed a general called Leontius to lead a campaign against the Arabs in Armenia, which led to an increase in the payments of slaves and horses according to the peace treaty agreed by his father. Soon the imperial army had defeated the Slavs and Bulgars and regained control of all of the Balkans. 20,000 Slavic soldiers were sent to the east to help with the campaigns against the Arabs. In his first few years, Justinian took power away from the aristocracy and improved the lives of the common people, and the population began to grow. He also improved the tax system so that villages paid tax, not individual people. This meant that people who could afford more paid more, and people who couldn't afford paid much less. This was fine until Justinian raised the levels of the taxes so that nobody could afford to pay. This eventually led to the 20,000 Slav soldiers changing sides during the Battle of Sebastopolis, and the empire suffering a terrible defeat, which ended in the loss of Armenia to the Arabs. Justinian flew into a mad rage at this defeat, and for the first time showed the bloodthirsty side of his nature that was to lead to his overthrow. Twice. He had all the Slavs in Bithynia rounded up, and had every last one of them executed. Their bodies were thrown into the sea. In 691, Justinian II decided he wanted to have more power over the church, so he summoned 165 eastern bishops to Constantinople. Unfortunately for him, his father had already sorted out the major problem in the Christian church, so there really wasn't anything to discuss. This was not going to put off good old Justinian though. There was nothing important to agree on, so they agreed on lots of really, really silly, unimportant things instead. In the end, 102 church laws called canons were published. Some of these are absolutely hilarious. Canon 24 said that priests were not allowed to go to the races or to the theatre. Canon 50 said that playing dice was illegal and anyone caught doing it would be excommunicated. Canon 63 said that anyone who went to a fortune teller or showed bears or other animals to trick simple people would have to suffer penitence for six years. Canon 65 said that people were not allowed to dance around a bonfire during a full moon. See, there really wasn't anything important to discuss. Justinian was delighted with his new canons though, and sent the whole lot to Rome and ordered the Pope to agree with every one of them. Pope Sergius said no, so Justinian ordered Zacharias, the exarch of Ravenna, to arrest him. The exarch tried, but his troops refused to do what they were told, and Zacharias ended up hiding under the Pope's bed to avoid being killed by his own men. Pope Sergius calmed them all down, and Zacharias escaped, but the Pope remained very much unarrested. The Emperor was, of course, furious, and flew into yet another rage. People were starting to get tired of this angry Emperor, but he was the son of Constantine IV, so they put up with him. The only area that Justinian II managed to do anything which was even close to what Justinian the Great had done was in his building projects. 
his tax collectors, a giant of a man called Stephen, and the Grand Logothete, Theodotus, were even more hated than the awful John of Cappadocia had been, but they did their job and there was plenty of cash. Justinian spent it on churches and palaces, which were even more grand than anything built since the mid-500s. Eventually, the constant need for more cash became too much for the people, and especially the wealthy aristocracy. Stephen and Theodotus had started to use torture to extract valuables from their targets. Their favourite method was to hang people over a fire, so that the smoke eventually got into their lungs. This painful torture lasted until the victim was unconscious. If they still refused to pay up when they came to, then they would have to go through the whole process again. In 692, the general, Leontius, had been thrown into prison after the terrible defeat at Sebastopolis. He'd been in charge of the army at the time, and Justinian decided that he was responsible, and so he must be punished. While he was in prison, two monks had visited him and told him that one day he would wear the imperial diadem. This was not very likely given that he was in prison, but he was unexpectedly released in 694 and given the job of military governor of the theme of Hellas. Leontius saw his chance. He marched on the local jail and released all of his comrades who had been in prison with him. He then marched on the capital and called on anyone who he passed to gather outside St Sophia. The emperor, he told everyone, was going down, so be there. With the support of the Blues, Leontius was declared Basileus. Justinian II was taken prisoner and paraded around the Hippodrome while people shouted insults at him. When this was over, his nose was split so he would be unfit to rule, but he was not executed. This was a decision that the new emperor would come to regret. Justinian was exiled to Curson. Stephen and Theodotus were not so lucky. They, and many of Justinian's other ministers, were tied by their feet to the back of heavy wagons and dragged down the maze, a street in Constantinople, to the Forum Bovis. There, they were burned alive. The empire may have disposed of a tyrant, but had set itself along a destabilising path. Justinian II's line stretched back to Heraclius. The dynasty was established and carried legitimacy. Leontius did not. Next time, we'll discover the effects of this lack of legitimacy, and we'll also discover that having a slit nose does not bar you from being emperor after all. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please go to www.mythandhistory.podbean.com. There you will find a donation button. The podcast is and will remain free, but of course any donations which help with my hosting costs will be much appreciated. If you want to ask questions or leave feedback then you can do so in a couple of ways. Contact me by email mythandhistory at gmail.com or friend me on Facebook Paul Vincent Myth and History. So have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.